Welcome to Pastors of the Roundtable. We hope you're doing well today. Thank you for joining us. This is, uh, of course, the Discipleship Podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, and it's brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC in Monroe, Michigan. Uh, Together, we encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MMBC. Uh, sitting around the table with me today, again, our usual cast of characters, Tim Angeli, Scott Slater, and I'm Spencer Snow. Um, today, we want to continue our discussion about uh, different uh, denominations of people that profess to be Christians. Um, last week, we talked about um, Roman Catholicism, what that is, uh, what they believe, how they're different from us. Uh, this week, we want to discuss a, a different a uh, group of, of people who profess Christianity, and that would be Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Now, for many of us, uh, you may not know what Eastern Orthodox Christianity is. For many of us, um, probably our acquaintance, if you live in Monroe with Orthodox Christianity, is uh, with St. George's Serbian Orthodox Church out by the mall on... Uh, on the bite there by mall road. Mm -hmm. Um, or if you've watched a a movie, the my big fat Greek wedding, um, that will probably be about the extent probably, um, of your understanding of Eastern Orthodoxy in, in many cases, unless you've got friends or family or you come out of this. Um, so it embraces, uh, churches of like the, the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, um, Antiochian Orthodox, uh, so on. There's many different denominations that fall underneath this, but um, they're basically uh, from Eastern Europe, the Eastern half of uh, you know the Eastern Bloc and Russia and such. That's where many of these churches originally came from, and um, there's many here in the uh, Detroit metro area. Guys, do you have any? Um, what's your experience been with Orthodox Christians or people who profess to come from an Orthodox background? I think I know like one family maybe that uh, my kids ran with. Uh, I think that's it. But like you said, just going to halls. They have a, a lot yeah. of the churches have halls that you can rent right. for weddings and different things. Right. I've uh, been to those. Okay. I've I've never had any interaction. Right. You're not very ecumenical though. Mm. Apparently not. Apparently not. No. Nope. I did visit one once, but that was in college again in a class just to visit their building. Okay. Cool. What was it like? It. Uh, I remember being um, kind of impressed on how everything had a purpose, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wherever where things were placed, you know, why things were, even the dome on the ceiling. I just remember them saying there's a reason for the dome. And I think he was just talking about like, as we, as we worship and we, we have that dome, it's like, you know, being able to look up into heaven and just this idea of heaven being right with you or around you, right. you know, and all this. Uh, so there was just a lot of symbolism. And a lot of purpose mm-hmm. behind all the different things that they did. I thought that was pretty neat coming from our background where a building was just kind of a building. Right, right. Know? Is that kind of why um, Ford Field is a dome? It's kind of like that to, um, to really feel open? give you a different feel? Is that what that's for? I mean, for? the feeling in there normally is losing. Oh, so. okay. Do you well, know what we're talking about, Scott? That's uh, <laughs> NFL football. I, NFL to football. To be honest, I didn't. <laughs> football. Americano. Um, so today in the world, it's interesting. You can look at where are most Eastern Orthodox or Orthodox Christians uh, located in the world. There are, um, I don't know the total. I believe it's like 40%, though, of the world's Orthodox Christians are located in Russia. Oh, okay. So, like, as you can see there, the number one country with Orthodox Christians is Russia with over 101 million. Do you the, know this? I don't What page you on? Uh, page six. Yep, I was way off. Do you know this answer, Spencer? Maybe, maybe you don't. But, like, did the Eastern Orthodox Church split up a lot because of war? Like, between nations mm. where there was, like... Like I see the mm-hmm. Russian Orthodox Church, and then you right. see these other ones. You're like, they don't get along. They, maybe, is that why there's a Russian Orthodox Church and there's this one over here? Because they... Yeah, I don't know. I do not know. I know they call it, um, they have the term, I'm probably going to butcher it, is it like autocephalous, which I believe means kind of like self-governing churches. Mm-hmm. Sounded like a disease. <laughs> so it's kind of similar to like, um, well, we're going to talk eventually about the um, Anglican Communion, which is the Church of England, or in our in our country mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. we would know it as the Episcopal Church. 
but if there there are churches around the world that are part of the Anglican communion and what that means is is they're in fellowship together um, primarily with by having fellowship with the Archbishop of Canterbury but each of those churches like the one in Kenya the one in Nigeria the one in the US they're all self-governing it's not like the the Archbishop of Canterbury can come in and say well the US church has to do this or the Kenyan church has to do that but it's kind of like a loose confederation coalition. And I think in a way that's kind of the way orthodoxy works is each of these countries, there's various independent self-governing churches, but they're also kind of like a coalition of sorts that that are a block, uh, so to speak. But it's different from Roman Catholicism because they don't have a single guy who's like, um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to crudely put this, but like the CEO of the church. There's Mm -hmm. no one senior pastor of everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There's different bishops, like the the Bishop of Moscow and the Bishop of... uh, Constantinople. You got different people, and they would all be recognized as equals working together, colleagues, so to speak. If mm-hmm. that makes if that makes sense. Sure. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's funny though, because the number one country in the world with with Orthodox population is Russia, one hundred one million. The next closest is Ethiopia with thirty five million. So it just shows you there's a lot, a lot of Orthodox Christians. Um, in in Russia, seventy one percent of their population, it says, is Ru- is Orthodox. That's what it says. Right well, of the Russian population, yeah. Um, Moldova has ninety five percent. Anybody ever been to Moldova? Mm-mm. Okay, sounds like a good place. Yeah. Um, eighty seven percent of Greece. Yeah. Really, the Greek Orthodox. Mm. It says Georgia, yeah, I know, but yeah. it says Georgia is eighty-seven percent. That's surprising. I figured they'd be more Baptist. Yeah, you know that's a. I never thought about. That. The sad thing is, I don't know if you're being honest. Or <laughs> joking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, thanks, Tim. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's a good point, Scott. I'll have to. We'll have to contact our. Uh, apparently, there's a lot of work to do for the Georgia Baptist Convention down there because they got eighty-seven percent of them are. Our, uh, it's orthodox. a mission field. It's a mission yeah, field down we there. We should get some IMB. <laughs> no, that would be NAM. NAM, NAM, NAM money. Yeah, good job. Um, so, yeah, that's that's orthodoxy. Um, it's it's alluring to people, I think, in some ways, because similar to like what we talked about in the last episode, orthodoxy, if you talk to people, they'll, they act, um, it's the, the, the message they want to give is that we haven't changed. You know, all these denominations have uh, changed their doctrine. They've adjusted their worship. We've stayed the same from the beginning. So, if you want to find what true Christian, what full Christianity looks like, um, you should come to one of our churches because we have the the fullness of the faith is found in our churches. Additionally, one of the things that might be interesting for people uh, from uh, that, if you're, you know, why would it be alluring to people to want to join this? Uh, so they've got that sense of transcendence, of history, of of uh, of beauty, in a sense of of beyond their time. But also, there's a sense in which you don't have to follow the Pope if you don't want to, because you don't have to. Because to the the Eastern Orthodox, the Pope is not infallible, so you don't have to do that. And also, there's a sense in which because it's Eastern, it's a little, you know, it's kind of like otherworldly and mysterious. And I think that's attractive to people. Um, sometimes uh, as well. So uh, before we talk a little bit about what Eastern Orthodox Christians believe and some of the big things that we might differ from them on, is there anything else you guys would like to add uh, before we go into it? About what we know? Or just about it in general? Or I, mean, I don't know if you're going to get into this, but I think Eastern Orthodoxy has much more of a uh, emphasis on like early church history yeah. and church fathers mm-hmm. and... Uh, I mean, to be completely honest, that's an area that I really wish I knew more about, you know, early church fathers and councils and things like that. Um, why do you think that is that um, um, why in our tradition we don't talk about the well, early church fathers so much? Well, I think because specifically because we're Protestants, we find our origins in the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of stop there. Right. A lot, I think, because that's where we see the birth 
of Protestantism, which mm-hmm. Baptist is of, out of that vein. And yeah. so we go back to that as like that. This is our origin story. But the reality is our origins do go back much further than that. Yeah. And um, but, yeah, I think that's why I think that's a good point, um, because and it's helpful to remind ourselves, too, that the reformers um, of which the Baptists, we come out of the Protestant Reformation, they thought um, while they didn't think the church fathers were infallible, they definitely read them mm-hmm. and thought we're learning and we can see a, yeah. a basic substantial, you know, continuity between what we're trying to talk about grace and the, you know, all these different things. They were learning from those fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they're infallible or anything like that, but they were helpful. And so they did read them. And so maybe that's a helpful reminder. Um, I think one of the things that shows is um, what we think about our origin story as far as like a denomination or this, this applies to any, like, you know, for instance, for us as America, the way we read and think about our history in the past influences what we think about ourselves in the present. And similarly, the way in which we think about uh, the Reformation happening or where we come from as Baptist or whatever, where our story begins, it, it influences then how we think about, you know, for instance, today, we just typically don't read the fathers oftentimes in our tradition. So um, I think that's a, that's an interesting point um, to, to highlight. Um, so let's talk real quick about Orthodox Christians, what they believe and such. First of all, similar to um, Roman Catholicism last week, they believe that there are multiple sources of doctrine in the sense in which, remember we talked about how we as Protestants believe that Scripture alone is the final authority for our faith and our practice as Christians. We don't believe that there is an unwritten tradition out there that is equally authoritative with sacred Scripture. Rome believes that there is unwritten tradition that is authoritative alongside of, equal with Scripture. And similarly, Eastern Orthodoxy believes that whilst while they embrace Scripture, tradition, there is unwritten tradition and such that are that is a source of Christian doctrine. In fact, um, you can go online. There's a website, I think it's for the Orthodox Church in America, and they have a they have a very helpful website in the sense in which they've got a I think it's basically a book that they've just posted in articles um, on their website to help you understand what they believe, and they give a list of sources of Christian doctrine. Now I'm not saying they necessarily place these all on the same level, but these are sources that they give for their Christian doctrine. First of all, tradition. Secondly, the Bible. Thirdly, the liturgy. In other words, the service, the worship service, and the order of it itself. Fourthly, the councils, the early church councils. Uh, five, the fathers, the early church fathers. Six, the saints, uh, people throughout the ages who have uh, been exemplars of the Christian faith. Seven, canons, which I believe they're talking about church law that's been encapsulated. And then lastly, even church art, which includes for them icons or music or architecture, or sculpture, needlework, poetry, etc. They see all of these things as containing, at least to some extent, um, these are the sources from which they derive uh, their their Christian doctrine. What is an icon? An icon is um, a picture. So, like you've uh, you um, you'll you can look it up online and see a very distinctive kind of form of of a of a of a picture. But for them, it's very interesting. Icons are not simply pictures of Jesus or of saints or whatever or Bible stories, but they they understand them almost as having. Um, a very spiritual teaching component. Um, I think I have somewhere else about icons. Um, let me see real quick if I can find it in this. Uh, what don't they also have uh, relics? Yeah, they do have relics. They I, don't call that icon. No, an icon is specifically a a, a, a two dimensional picture uh, of Christ. So this is one of the things they say. Um, this is quoting from that resource. The icon is orthodoxy's highest artistic achievement. It is a gospel proclamation, a doctrinal teaching, and a spiritual inspiration in colors and lines. The traditional orthodox icon is not a holy picture. It is not a pictorial portrayal of some Christian saint or event in a photocopy way. It is, on the contrary, the expression of the eternal and divine reality, significance, and purpose of the given person or event described. Um, So it's, and it says, in this way, the icon expresses a deeper realism 
So it, and they even describe that it is an inexhaustible source of revelation of the Orthodox doctrine and faith. So they'll call it like a window into heaven. So it's very image driven, very image driven. And I think, um, but I remember wa- uh, watching something on Eastern Orthodoxy and their whole worship service is very sent. I mean, all your senses, sensual, they want mm-hmm. all of it to be engaged from yes. smell Yes. Taste, hearing, sight, all of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, um, well, this is not the point of this. I think one of the things that you see in church history, um, and you can see these trajectories happen, that in a church where imagery abounds and sensual stuff abounds, the word of God is put down. The more images you increase, the more the the written and preached word and read word of God goes down. See, he would now they would say the exact opposite, right? Well, I I, th- I see how you you interviewed. Uh, oh, yeah, you interviewed mm-hmm. this guy, and he he said something very different. He says his their liturgy is all about the word of God, right? And everything they do is actually their interpretation of the word right. of God. Yeah, yeah. He said it's like a commentary. It's a commentary, yeah, on on that. But I think overall. Um, yeah, yeah. What you notice is that it's uh, uh, for us, at least. I think as Protestants, we would say we are a though the the means by which God creates faith in our hearts is the Spirit taking the Word through our ears. Yeah, faith comes by hearing. By hearing, that's the way we understand it. But I think uh, in in Roman uh, Catholicism, um, in Orthodoxy, um, at least those traditions. Um, where imagery abounds, mm-hmm. the written and preached word of God, you're not going to hear that as much. Mm-hmm. You're maybe chanting. I'm sure they, their services are quite long from what I understand. Yeah. And I'm sure there's going to be portions of Scripture there, which we can be thankful for, um, but it's probably not going to be interpreted the way that we think it should be understood uh, as Protestants. And also, um, that's... Like, go ahead. I mean, I'm, what I'm thinking of is that, uh, I mean, like what I heard before... Like the printing press mm-hmm. and uh, literacy was common. Yeah, one of the main ways people would be taught and remember is like stained glass windows. Yeah, used to have the, a teaching purpose. Exactly to display like a parable mm-hmm. or something like that right. that people were supposed to attribute to it. Yeah, and there's actually you know we say that there's no there's no symbolism there's no meaning in like more modern churches like ours would be but one of the central components that changed in many protestant churches mm-hmm. is that the lectern or mm-hmm. where, whatever you call it where mm-hmm. something is where the pastor or priest whatever preaches from yes. went from being off to the side to the middle right like right. it becomes the focus of yep. everything yep. and so there actually is deep symbolism in that of yes. being the middle the focus where the attention is drawn to is the word itself and, and also notice the Lord's Supper is put. We have the table it's traditionally in our church in the back. Well, <laughs> well, it's a, well, whenever we do the Lord's Supper, yeah. it's underneath the pulpit. Mm-hmm. So the sacra- the sacraments or the ordinances, as Protestants, we would say the preached word is primary, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are 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 subservient to the word. We need preached. an elevator pulpit then to get up to the Baptist. <laughs> well, and that's in the that's in the works. Oh, good. I think good. Uh, uh, coming up. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's a very important reminder because it's a, it's a good reminder why we don't our our sanctuary is not filled with icons and imagery. Um, because what this also gets back to is the fact that oftentimes the medium does impact the message. God has given us a specific way to worship Him because that way impacts actually what the content of that is. So whenever it came back to the Reformation time where you had people with like with all those images and such, and they're saying, well, how can the people learn if they don't have pictures? And the Reformers would say, teach them to read. And, th- and also come to church. We're going to read the Bible to you. We're going to preach the word to you and teach them to read so that they can read the Bible themselves. That's how God has chosen to... Um, teach us the faith and he's giving us he's given us two visible um visual ways to confirm that faith in the water of baptism and through the bread and the cup of the lord's supper so he's given us two ordained pictures by which we're to 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 understand it and and whenever we go outside those things we're actually starting to think that we know better than god as to how to convey his message and i think you can see that trajectory in churches where imagery abound the word of God starts to get silenced more and more and more. 
And so it's just a good reminder to us. But they have so many, going back to the Orthodox churches, they do have uh, many different sources of, of doctrine, including the canon laws and all this stuff. And so, again, it's so important for us to know the basis upon which we believe what we believe um, and why we believe it and why we always go back to Scripture. This is why we read the Bible in service, because we believe that God speaks to us in Scripture. And this is why um, we don't ask, um, you know, Pastor Tim doesn't get up there and do skits for us every Sunday. He preaches to us. Now, I would like to see him do a skit. You'd be disappointed a bit. You think so? <laughs> Depends, probably. <laughs> Depends on the day. Yeah. <laughs> But um, that's why we do it, because we're convinced um, that Scripture alone is the foundation for our faith and our practice. Um, anything else you want to say about that before we move to the second part? No. Okay. Good. Second thing I think that's helpful to remind ourselves about what the Eastern Orthodoxy uh, teaches and believes is related to their understanding of sin. And one of the things I do over and over in the class, and I think it's good for us to do on the podcast, is to talk about we've talked about the source, right? The foundation for our faith, but also understanding what the problem is that Christianity comes to address. And secondly, then trying to understand what the solution is to that problem. And orthodoxy defines uh, original sin. So what is the effect? What is the result of when Adam and Eve ate the fruit for us? Well, for them, original sin is primarily inherited mortality not inherited guilt. Let me read a quote here, and then um, we can talk about what this actually means and flesh it out. So um, stick with us. Uh, It says here, and I'm stealing this from a guy named John Meyendorf, uh, who's an Orthodox theologian. Um, And so I'm trusting that he he, um, is representing his, his case from his denomination faithfully. He said this, mortality or corruption or simply death understood in a personalized sense, has indeed been viewed since Christian antiquity as a cosmic disease which holds humanity under its sway, both spiritually and physically, and is controlled by the one who was the murderer from the beginning. It is this death which makes sin inevitable and in this sense corrupts nature. He continues elsewhere, and a same theologian, same writer, um, in a different article says this, This fallenness is not expressed in terms of divine punishment inflicted upon all humans, from parents to children, but rather in terms of a usurpation or illegitimate tyranny exercised by Satan upon God's creation. Humans are rather seen as victims of the universal reign of death. What is being transmitted from parents to children is not sin, but mortality and slavery, creating a condition where sin is inevitable. So stop there real quick. What this gentleman is saying is that the biggest problem we have right now after the fall of mankind into sin is not sin, but it's death. Death is the thing that's been passed on. Now, Tim, what do you think? Is that going to be a problem, you think, eventually? Or is that what does the Bible say about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, towards the beginning of what you said, he said, it is this death that makes sin inevitable. Yes. To me, that's a problem because death came because of sin. That's right. But they're making it sound like sin comes because of death, that death yes. was always the foreordained thing. Yes. And, and that, biblically, that's... One causes the other. Yeah. Sin causes death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're placing the emphasis and saying, as we'll see here, I think, um, in just a second, the only person who sinned when Adam and Eve sinned was just Adam and Eve. Their sin, they don't convey any kind of sinful nature to us. Mm -hmm. It's only death, and then death leads us to sin. And so right away you'll notice he's, he's flipped the cause and effect relationship that we see, for instance, in Paul in Romans chapter 5, where all men... Uh, died because all men sinned. Let's go real quick, and I'll see, and you'll see again what he says here. Um, uh, where is where am I stealing this from? Oh, it looks like uh, I'm trying to look at my footnotes here. Looks like this is from another resource, but it says here in the Orthodox teaching, we are subject to sinful tendencies, sickness, suffering, and death as the result of our descendants from Adam. With Adam's sin, our nature was changed. Our goal now is to overcome these fallen tendencies with the help of the Holy Spirit, on and on. In the Orthodox view, I'm, I continue on elsewhere, in the Orthodox view, guilt can only result from an act which one has committed. 
we can't sin for another person. We believe that we need a Savior to overcome death and our separation from God, to be forgiven our own transgressions, but not to be forgiven for Adam's transgression. For Adam, sin came first, then death. We inherit death from Adam, and our sin follows. So one of the things you'll notice is they say that because of, this is the logic they start using, because now for us, death is the, death is the main thing that has to be conquered now, not sin. Death is, because in a world where death is at, you feel the need to survive. And so you'll start sinning because you feel the need to survive and try to escape death. And so the biggest problem you have is not your sinful, corrupt heart. It's the fact that you die. And so Jesus comes not to primarily deal with your corrupt heart, because your heart's really not corrupt, first and foremost. You're actually a good person, I'm assuming they would say overall. The biggest problem is, is now you're afraid to die. So Jesus came to take care of your fear of death first. So that way now you can be a good person, which to hmm. us is flipping um, right. uh, the argument, it seems, of, yeah. of Paul and the, the whole scriptures from our perspective, at least. I wonder, uh, I mean, this could be far-fetched, but I wonder how long a time they feel went from creation to this to sin. I don't know. It'd have to be relatively quick because, or else Adam could have died. Would could Adam have died before he sinned? Uh, I don't I mean because again, you just keep making mm-hmm. it sound like death is the problem. Is the problem? It's not sin, right? And so, that's, I don't know. That's just, I'm just I would be a little curious about that because I, I think what I would say is if Adam doesn't sin, Adam doesn't die. Right. He keeps going, and he would right. still be going if he wouldn't have. Of sin, I don't know if they can say that same stance because, but I, I that's curious because at the end there, he said for Adam, sin came first, then death. Yes, I feel like they're kind of saying it both ways. Yeah, so I it's they're right for Adam. That's the way it happened for him. He sinned, and then because he sinned, and that he was died. But the thing that Adam passes on to us is, is death, death, and because of we die, right. now yeah. we sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to I mean because they did say we can't sin for another person, right. which we would agree. Like, I can't sin for you, but they're, I think they're using that to say, see, Adam can't sin for you. Right. They're trying, and but the ironic thing, and this is where I think it gets to the point, is if Adam can't represent me, mm-hmm. then how can Jesus represent me? That would be my That's thing, That's the right? thing. And you'll notice, imputate, like the idea that Jesus is your representative and in the way we think about it, taking our place, bearing our shame, I think is very much relegated in their theology. Jesus comes to help make the way for you so that a way you can now progress in your in your spiritual life. Mm-hmm. But um, that whole idea that he takes my place and what happens to him is determining where I'm going to end up is, I think, foreign to a large degree. So, I mean, also, it doesn't make sense of passages of Scripture like this from Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and de- so death spread to all men. Why did death spread to all men? Paul says, because all sinned. So Paul is saying it is because all men sinned in Adam that all men die in Adam. Mm-hmm. That is the causation. Sin causes death. But they start flipping it to where now the reason why you sin in the world now is because of death. And so the this is this is the thing though is the solution now has to be Jesus has to overcome your mortality, not your sinful heart. That becomes what the work of Christ is primarily about now, which is totally different from the way we think about the cross of Christ, who comes to take our sin so that a way He can give us life and take away the death. Um, so by flipping these things, they've actually started to really. Um, create a to a different gospel to a large degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very different too than the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. which I yeah. I guess I'm a little surprised in that because I know they stem from the same mm-hmm. place. And that's what I was just trying to look on your chart here of when they divided back in 1054. It seems to be the change, but apparently they didn't have this sin nailed down by then. Yeah, or they just have changed since then. One of the things too I've heard. Um, just in studying this, is that at least with Roman Catholic uh, 
writers and uh, people who, you know, pastors, theologians, they have an idea like we do as Protestants that, well, you should be able to kind of, in a sense, categorize, logically think through your beliefs. It sounds as if Eastern Orthodoxy is much more about like mystery. Yeah. And like, well, that's a Western way of doing theology. Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. do that in the East. Yeah. We don't do that here. We do. You guys are thinking through these things through your Western lenses, which to us sounds like, well, it, no, we're just trying to process what you're saying. But I think there's also a, an element in which even the way in which we think about understanding our beliefs is different. And that's one of the things um, one of the interviewees, I think, said that is, mm-hmm. uh, are you reading that right now? I was looking for it because I remember, I remember reading where one of these one of these guys that you interviewed said something along those lines of like how they just there's a big difference between the Western mm-hmm. uh, churches and Eastern churches. Um, says I think the mode of theology, which is a complex concept, is different in Western churches, including Protestant and Roman Catholic, from Eastern churches. And I think that's where he's talking yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he didn't define mode of theology of what he meant by there, um, but I think that is. What you're what you're mentioning, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that this is going to be helpful. And let's see now how this plays out. Um, so if the biggest problem I have is the fact that I die, yeah. not my sinful heart. Let's see how that impacts what Jesus came to do. Um, and this um, highlights what is really the at the center of Eastern Orthodox theology, which is uh, rooted in a Greek word called theosis or deification. And it is, um, there's a guy named Donald Fairbairn who in this article um, online, you can find it online for free, um, he he talks and mentions that theosis is a core idea of the Eastern Orthodox uh, belief system. And he defines it as the process of acquiring godly characteristics, gaining immortality and incorruptibility, and experiencing communion with God. So it's a process. It's the ongoing gr- growth in these things. We might think about the think about it as either sanctification or even glorification. And it's the process by which you are being made more and more and more and more divine in the sense that you're more and more and more like God. They don't think and this is very important. They don't think that you're becoming God like you know, for instance, like we think about the Mormons uh-huh. who think that you're divine as God is divine. They're not saying that, but they're saying that you become more and more and more like uh, like God. So the goal of of Jesus came to help you in this process become more and more and more like God. Um, so mankind was made to participate in God and to grow in this divine life. And so the problem is that we find ourselves, though, in a world where death is a reality. So what does Jesus come to do? He deals with our main problem, which in Orthodox theology is not our sin, but it's the fact that we die. So this is a this is a helpful quote again from that guy, John Meyendorf. He says this, In the East, the cross is not envisaged so much as the punishment of the just one, which satisfies a transcendent justice requiring a retribution for man's sins. As Georges Florovsky, it's a great Eastern Orthodox name, rightly puts it, the death of the cross was effective not as a death of an innocent one, but as the death of the incarnate Lord. The point was not to sat was not to satisfy a legal requirement, but to vanquish the frightful cosmic reality of death, which held humanity under its usurped control and pushed it into the vicious circle of sin and corruption. Just as original sin did not consist in an inherited guilt, so redemption was not primarily a justification but a victory over death. So for us, we think about Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the, not the death of the world, right, but the sins. sins. But wouldn't we say that there's a, I'm sorry. I no, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, wouldn't we say that there, that it's like a both and? Yeah. That part of our problem is both that we are sinful and that needs to be taken care of, but that we die. And so the but resurrection of Christ, and so yeah. there is both. I missed mm-hmm. a big part of it. Yeah, that's what we were talking about, because okay. they, they bring death first. Oh, okay. And sin is inevitable because of death. 
mm-hmm. which is kind of flipped the script yeah, for what backwards. we would say. Yeah. And, but that's what leads to this. Yes. Yeah. And this, death through sin. This reminds me, and I, mm-hmm. I don't know why I could be way off, but like, like some of N.T. Wright, Wright stuff. Yeah. I, I, I haven't read him really, but I, but it, you know, if sin is downplayed, yeah. Um, I think it's. I he think, talks a lot about you know legality, like you're talking about oh, justification yeah. as this legal precedence right. thing that's being set up, and that's right. not it. That's not what Paul meant. It's not what he right. had in mind. Right. Which is similar here of what is is being said. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where we would say you're right, Scott. We would say it's both. We would say Jesus by taking care of our sin and taking our place and our shame and the death that we deserve is able to now give us. He bought it for us and gives us life. For them, they would say. Your biggest problem isn't your sin; it's the fact that you're going to die. So Jesus died and set you free from death, so that you can now use your free will yeah. that you already had, I think, beforehand. Mm-hmm. But now, with God's grace, to now grow in theosis to that's, help you yeah. with God. Well, that's, I've, okay. that's funny because I think our society would say that's our biggest problem is death. Yes, yeah. yes, it matches actually really yeah. well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just I've always thought of it, and maybe this is incorrect, and tell me if it is. If there's categories in terms of where we stand legally before God needs to be taken care of, and that is yes. what the atonement of Christ yeah. uh, solves mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. But then we also need to be made new, Yep, and that is what the resurrection and regeneration. Mm-hmm. Is that a correct way to think yeah, about it? Yeah, I think it? they both flow. Yeah, mm-hmm. the killing of the old man, the raising of the new man, the yeah. justification. Yeah, yeah, Christ's death and So isn't this like the Christ, mm-hmm. Christus Victor verse? It, it, uh, I don't know if that would be traditionally how Christus Victor is is communicated but people might come across that which i think mm-hmm. is similar to what right. we talked about here right and there is truth in the christus victor mm-hmm. argument i mean like it's not the total picture but yeah there is um there is truth we do believe jesus gives us the victory but the question is is what did he need to be victorious right over Death, sin right <laughs> right why did jesus have to go die mm-hmm. why did he have to go on the cross and be raised from the grave mm-hmm. well for us yeah. It's because of sin which leads to death. And for this, for the Orthodox, it's primarily because of death which leads to sin. Mm-hmm. And so how you, this shows some people also, I think this is one of the things too, is oftentimes people will hear this and they'll say, well, you're just arguing about words. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, right. It doesn't this matter. It's a Western way of talking yeah. about <laughs> But the order and the cause and effect relationship has creates vastly different religions. Would it be pretty appalling then to the Orthodox Church here about saying, well, he satisfies the wrath of God? I don't know. I don't you know. know. That would be fascinating to ask them. I wonder how they would feel about that, because what is the wrath of God? Is it the, God so mad because of death? I mean, you're saying he dies because of death. Mm-hmm. Is God mm-hmm. mad at death, or is God right. mad about sin? Is the wrath of God right. on well, sin? And this also plays in the fact, are we primarily, as this writer was saying earlier, we are primarily victims Right, yeah, yeah. Is man is humanity primarily the object of pity because we are victims, or because we are, are we children enemy? of wrath? Yeah, are we enemies? Right, are we the enemies that are, need reconciled? Are we a display of God's grace? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And again, that's a great point. Well, of course we believe in God's grace. Well, what do you mean by God's grace? Mm-hmm. Right. Again, like how do you mm-hmm. define these terms? Um, I think this really shows that we we have to be careful. In, in our conversations with other people, defining our terms, understanding these things, um, because it does create a, a shows a vastly different um, uh, religion. So what did Jesus come to do? So would they be similar to Roman Catholicism about when it comes to grace, that it is kind of given to you through the sacraments, it's through the Eucharist, through going to service, going to Mass, yeah. I think yeah. they call it Mass. I too, think right? it's funny, right? Because whereas, and this, is, this is shows a difference between the Eastern and the Western way of thinking. The Western church, at least Rome, Rome says there's seven sacraments. The Eastern church says, yeah, there's seven, but who's counting? <laughs> okay. Right. That's kind of the way they view it. And I think that's just kind of a, um, a thing. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that a little bit, because the next point is, so Jesus comes to free mankind from our main problem, which is the fact that we die, not mm-hmm. the fact that we sin, which leads to death. And so therefore, theosis, this process by which we acquire these godly characteristics is a cooperative process between God and God. He gives us grace and power through the sacraments. And it's the other side is man's free quote. And I'm quoting here, free human effort, free human effort. It's through our free human effort 
that we receive God's grace or power through the sacraments by which we then go and enter this process of putting on these godly characteristics. So I'm quoting here um, again. I think this is from a website, an Antiochian Orthodox church, it looks like, and they talk about what theosis is. They say this, We become united with God by grace in the person of Christ, who is God come in the flesh. The means of becoming like God is through perfection in holiness. The continuous process of acquiring the Holy Spirit by grace through ascetic devotion. Some Protestants might refer to this process as sanctification. Another term for it, perhaps more familiar to Western Christians, would be mortification, putting sin to death within ourselves. In fact, deification is this is this is fascinating. Deification is very akin to the Wesleyan understanding of holiness or perfection, with the added element of our mystical union with God and Christ as both the means and the motive for attaining perfection. Father David Hester in his booklet, The Jesus Prayer, identifies theosis as, quote, the gradual process by which a person is renewed and unified so completely with God that he becomes by grace what God is by nature. Um, so the goal is that through this theosis, God gives you the power and the grace and fuels you so that by your free human effort, you can acquire these, these perf- you can become more and more perfect. I think it was fascinating that they said it's very akin to the Wesleyan idea <laughs> of holiness or perfection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the, the Christian life in orthodoxy, at least if I'm following what they're saying salvation is all about, is not primarily about Jesus Christ dying for me, taking away my sin, accepting me, giving me the assurance, and now I live out of gratitude for what he's done. But it's primarily now, Jesus has done his part. Now through my free human will, I'm going to take these things and grow and grow and grow. And so my whole spiritual life is not living out of gratitude, but growing, growing, growing more and more so that I can become more and more perfect. And it becomes all about me and my spiritual life Mm -hmm. instead about what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Seems very burdensome. Oh, boy. I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. I think it it feels very weighty. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how... I don't know how you could long go on this road, but I know people do. Yeah. Um, well, like we said with Roman Catholicism, this this that lack of assurance of like, yes, have I done enough? Have I have I grown enough? You know, all all these different. It'd be like being in a marriage that you have to earn the love over and over again instead of it being a covenant that was made together at the beginning, saying I I am mm-hmm. covenanting with you. I promise I will love you always forever. Right. And so. But then now I'm in this relationship where I have to earn her love every day. I've got to I've got to do more. I've got to become better. I've got to grow. And I'm always wondering if it's a if it's enough or when I go home tonight, will she even be there? Yeah. I don't know because I don't know if I attained what I needed to yesterday. Yep. Or today. Yep. You talk about a, a horrible way to live of no peace, really no joy. Um, except for maybe if you're like just some awesome person who's always growing, which there's. None of those, right? I mean, we right. we just can't do that, and so, man, it, yeah, I feel I would feel I feel bad for those who are I feel lost in this mm-hmm. this uh, fight, yep, day in and day out, right, right. It's just and just the watering down of grace, you know, like yep. like grace is just this little help. It's just right. It's, I mean, they might call it, might call it a little help. It's it's this big help, yeah, right. This big add on, but when you're talking about a task that's insurmountable. Right. If you give me a little help, that's not enough. You tell me to go climb Mount Everest. Right. Tell me I'm going to give you some help, and it's some right. big help. I'm right. going to give you the right clothes, and mm-hmm. I'm even going to give you a map. Right now, go do it. Right. But it's not enough. Right, I'm not going to make it. Right, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, there's just not enough help that you can give me until you throw me in a helicopter and take me to the top and drop me there. <laughs> right, know, type of thing. Right. Um. So. Yeah, and I don't know, I also, just as we wrap up, about how, you know, as you're thinking about this, um, if I'm trying to do this all the time, and I've got, and I know they, they, they're they not who they want to be yet in this deification process, according to their framework, when does it hit you, what's wrong? Why can't I do this better? Why can't, because really, the problem isn't my sinful heart, first and foremost. Right. The problem is death, and Jesus has taken care of that. And so what's the problem? And so I think that it's like they don't, um, 
there's just like a, a not a, a wrestling, I guess. I don't know like how you would wrestle with like Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, as a justified man, I do things I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I don't do. Paul there is not saying my biggest problem is that I'm afraid to die. Mm-hmm. He's saying it's my heart which refuses to submit to the, the good holy law of God um, and who will save me from this body of death, Jesus Christ my Lord. So... Um, Anyway, I think it's a, a helpful reminder again, just like last week with Roman Catholicism, that there are false gospels out there, alternative gospels, that may seem to be attractive at one level, um, but really cannot satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. And if you go into an Orthodox church, I don't know how much you studied this when you are doing it. Are you going to hear a sermon? I mean, are you going... I don't know. Because what uh, the guy you interviewed, he said almost the whole service is sung. Yeah, that they sing, and it's it's uh, songs that were written eighth century to the tenth century by monks. So I mean, that's what yeah. that's what he said. Yeah, yeah. Um, and same like in a Catholic church, I know that they have like a a sermon time, <clears throat> but it's probably not what we're used to. Yeah, in hearing a sermon, correct? I don't know. I, I'm assuming. You so. Okay. All right. I don't know. Right. Um, are you going to start chanting? I, mean, I wouldn't know Scott? what to say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That's my contrib- contribution to this. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to say. I was chanting. Yeah, just say it from you know. Just say what you were normally going to say. Just try to do it. Have, the, do you have to rhyme everything? No, no, no that's, that's a Western way of thinking. Yeah, oh. Quit thinking so Western. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Okay, well, maybe I could do that then. Roses are reds, violets are blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. They have to have good memories. Those guys. Yeah, that guy that you're talking to is a like a professor of church music. The uh, Russin, yeah, Dr. Russin, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. a he teaches like church music at their <laughs> seminary. Are you serious? Yeah, no, he really does. Oh. That's what it says. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the other guy. Not, Not the other Dr. guy. Doctor Barnett. He's theology. Yep. In in uh, Yonkers, Yonkers, New York, Saint Vladimir. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Is there anything else you guys like to add before we wrap up? I guess what's the di- this might open up just too much conversation to go into, but um, verse that I was thinking about in terms of like this, um, the like theosis, their understanding of theosis and the difference that is to what we understand as sanctification, like um, like when the author of Hebrews says, "Strive in twelve fourteen, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And he goes on and on. Just what the difference is there, because we, you know, in terms of striving for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I mean, obviously we understand that positionally we've been made holy, like we've been made righteous, um, but we are even like we in our understanding of scripture have an understanding of what it means to strive mm-hmm. for holiness mm-hmm. is it just a i don't know i guess what's the difference there i would say the big difference is what spencer was saying about we strive for that out of gratitude of what christ has done they are striving for it to obtain yeah i think also for us again theosis um or for a sanctification just like you know i i can't justify myself I can't regenerate or effectually call myself. I can't adopt myself into God's family, and I can't sanctify myself, and I cannot glorify myself. Those are all God's jobs. Mm. My job, the duty that God requires of me, we would say is, uh, well, the first part before the fall and still continuing is the Ten Commandments. God's moral will is still valid, we would say. It's still a valid rule for our faith in life. Um, But also... After the fall, faith and repentance. God calls us to trust him, his grace to receive all of those benefits by faith. And repentance for us is not me striving out of my own strength to make progress in good works. Repentance is me seeing the sinfulness of my sin, seeing the grace that's off. Repentance for us always includes faith in Christ as seeing the grace that's in Jesus Christ already accomplished for us, and out of that now endeavoring to new obedience, and it's rooted in that. So I think there's, um, 
it feels like for, um, and like what Tim said, for us, it's never based for our acceptance is never based on our sanctification. And also, um, we trust that sanctification is God's work. Faith and repentance are our are the things that God works in us, and that's our response of gratitude and grace uh, towards Him. And so, but we never do these things in order to be accepted. We do these things because we have been accepted. Mm-hmm. So, all of those passages of Scripture we have to um, understand within that whole uh, complex of ideas. I think um, so. There are va- passages like you quoted from Hebrews where we're to strive for the holiness, run the race, mm-hmm. um, go for the crown. But we always do those knowing um, that it is uh, God's already accepted us and God's making us worthy, I think. Um, so the whole motivation is different, isn't it? Um, in that sense as well. What's okay. next? What do we do next week? Um, Lutheranism. 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 All right. Yep. That's the next week one. Thank you for listening. (laughs) We will say bye-bye now. (laughs) Thank you for listening very much. We hope this has been helpful. And, um, yeah, we look forward to talking with you next week about Lutheranism. Take care. God bless.